Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week's episode is one that I have been looking forward to for a really long time. I am talking to the design theorist, educator, and writer Cameron Tonkinwise. Cameron has written extensively about everything from interaction design to systems design to sustainable design to design thinking. He's taught in design programs literally around the world and has a very... uh, very vibrant uh, Twitter presence. He's someone who's come up on the podcast multiple times and is someone I'm just generally a fan of. I was first turned on to his work a few years ago after reading a really brilliant piece that he posted on Medium called Just Design that sort of parses out the differences between things like speculative design and critical design and design fiction, but also really smartly frames the role of design in the world and kind of the purpose of design. It's a piece that I've found myself returning to again and again and have started just assigning to my students in literally every class that I teach. I've just kind of made it this required reading. It's it's really, really good. Uh, and in this kind of really wide-ranging conversation, Cameron and I talk about that piece, but we also talk about his background in philosophy and how he was introduced to design and his relationship to the things he was thinking about in his his uh, philosophy classes. We talk about the problems with design's sort of newfound cultural currency where we live in a world that everybody knows what design is. And we also talk about how designers have to think about their work in the world, in this current culture and political climate, and what is design's role in that, or what is design's uh, place in that. This was such a fun and smart and interesting conversation that I just didn't want to end. I left it with my head spinning and, and excited, and I think I, I think that you're going to like it too. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive exclusive monthly newsletters with additional content and episode previews. Memberships really help keep the podcast going. I just appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy my conversation with Cameron Tonkinwise. Uh, you come from a philosophy background, right? Uh, it, that's that's possibly too strong. Okay. Uh, so I certainly studied philosophy, and then at a certain point, uh, a sort of quite rigorous continental philosopher said to me, I don't think what you're doing is philosophy. You should be rethinking whether you major in philosophy. And uh, that was a devastating blow, but at the same time, I started sort of working a little more in art theory and design studies okay and uh, started to realize well i should also say that there was a very it was in the heyday of post-modernity and post-structuralism okay. yeah and the kind of the department at the university of sydney where i was studying that was doing the most uh forward thinking in that domain was in fact the power institute of fine arts okay and so i started taking a lot of their courses just because they were doing a lot more continental theory than the philosophy department. Um, and so when this guy said to me, I don't think you're doing philosophy, he was kind of saying to me, I think what you're doing is what they do over there. And I don't know what it is, but you should go over there. So what were you, you know, when you were 
studying philosophy or when you kind of went to school, were you, what, what were you interested in or what did you want to, what, what was your kind of goal at that time in your life? Um, I mean, I was, I really embraced, uh, the liberal arts, which is, okay. which is not a thing in Australia as much as it's a kind of, uh, still an institution in America. There's this oh, weird way in which America and its pragmatism still has a strong commitment to the kind of original German idea of a liberal arts education. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it was a bit weird that I was, I was doing like a performance studies major and I was doing a, a philosophy major. And then I picked up this kind of fine arts major. And for a while I was doing a modern history major. So oh. it was, it was, it was all sort of over the place. But I think the two things to say was, yeah, they very quickly. I kind of arrived at university and, Literally, I was doing a play with someone and he said, you should read some Foucault. And I was like, Foucault. <laughs> and, uh, and then, so it was really embarrassing because it was in fact just totally sort of, oh, this is trendy, I should have a look at it. And then it was just, it was, and it's sort of a cliche to say, but it was literally one of those things where you just read it and thought, oh my God, like, like how, do, how do people think like this? And yeah. I've never thought like yep. and that. And that, I want some of that. And so I just started taking every philosophy course I could and, and fine arts course in that kind of domain. The other version of that story is that at some point, you know, I, I did it exactly as everybody did it in the early 90s, which is read the canon backwards. Okay. So you were kind of reading Derrida and you were reading Foucault and, and they were all sort of talking about this person Heidegger and you thought, <laughs> oh, I better read some Heidegger. Yeah. Um, and, and then... Uh, someone actually gave me a copy of Being in Time. And I have a distinct memory of standing in front of the library and literally opening this book and um, like going, wow, this is fantastic. Thanks. I'm really excited to read it. And looking at the page and thinking, this is English, because it was an English translation of the German. This is English. And I cannot understand a single word yeah. in this. <laughs> yeah. and, but, but it was actually... Like, yeah, for some reason, the reaction I had was just, wow, like, imagine being able to understand this. That's that's now what I'm going to do, which then requires you to kind of read all the way backwards. And yeah, um, so that's half the story. The other half of the story is that um, I was heavily into sort of uh, ecological politics, environmentalism, okay. sustainability. Okay. As, as I mean, that was the kind of I was a green left person uh, at that point. And. So it was kind of like coming across these discourses that were talking about large structural power, mm -hmm. but drawing attention to the materiality that supports right. and affords those forms of power. And then thinking, I also really want to help society restructure towards sustainability. Mm. Um, it, th those two things kind of collided, yeah. but they collided in an unfortunate way in that if, if you spend a lot of time reading theory with a big T, a big French T at the front of it, but then you are also actually interested in activism and on the ground <laughs> and going down to forests yeah. and protest. Yeah. yeah. All your like theory philosophy friends were just like, that's, that's not what you do. Hang out in capitalism, we read this stuff and we, we just take extraordinary visceral pleasure in the way we write and that's what we do and so <laughs> yeah. that frustration about the gap between the kind of philosophy and and the um and the kind of political activism that was a kind of tension that i felt right from the start uh and so to some extent that's that's sort of why i walked backwards into design yeah that i mean actually hearing you say that 
that makes a lot of sense. A, a definition of design that I've been using lately or, or, or something that I've been kind of talking about and thinking about lately is that design at a very kind of base level is uh, ideologies made artifact. Uh, yep. And it, it is, it's taking ways of seeing the world and then building them into existence. Uh, and so yeah. hearing you talk about this, that's kind of where it, I was curious of where this intersection happened. And it sounds like it was, it was that you were very interested in how the world worked. And so you kind of were, was taking this, this theory that you were reading and applying it to the environment, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that, that, that is so a couple of examples, let's say, um, you know, so the, the moment you start reading some Derrida, you start coming across graphic design mm -hmm. because yeah. the arguments are actually made typographically and in the book design in you know, right. a running footnote the entire length of an essay or, you know, even when you get to something like GLA, which is sort of on a sort of Hebraic uh, book design technique of two columns, all oh, this, yeah. you know. If, if, if you didn't know anything about graphic design and were just a philosopher reading Derrida, I always found it kind of like how could you have not then thought, well, I really should know something about graphic design and, yeah. the, you know, an entire essay on the signature in which right. there's a reproduction of the signature, which just would have killed the journal when it was published to work out how to do that. Right. And, right. Yeah. and so you just had to think about typography. So it was very weird to me that there were all these people sort of, in English literature departments, comparative literature departments, fine arts departments, reading this stuff, and philosophy departments occasionally reading this stuff, and and not sort of thinking, wow, you you need to know a lot about design. Yeah. And of course, then the case is much larger with somebody like Foucault. So again, right. you do find Foucauldian theorists realizing that they need to understand something about architecture right. yeah, and yeah. the interface between and built environments but they kind of they they recognize it but again the number of people particularly back in the 90s who were kind of literally saying okay so the discourse of architecture is how you further the critical project of Foucault yeah um it just was right. very limited yeah. and I should I'll just do one last thing which is call out someone who was really in fact very particular to that moment um, to me, and he's he's a crazy figure and and uh, not well enough known. So I like I like to call him out because he was I, I also a kind of a lovely guy. We managed to get him out to Australia at one point. So this is a guy called Gregory Ulmer. I don't know that he name. Was based in, yeah, he was based down in Florida, and he he's he's an English literature kind of professor, but he was in the circle of people who were beginning to say um, a deconstructive mindset fits with the kind of hypertext, hypercard mm -hmm. yeah. world. That, yeah. that once you move into electronic documents, you, you kind of are forced to think deconstructively in how you make arguments uh, in terms of questions of citation and, and, and reference and, and this kind of thing. So he then sort of um, spent a lot of time looking at the Walter Ong and Eric Havelock's okay. and uh, uh, Marshall McLuhan kind of world and started sort of developing this argument about orality and literacy and then what he was kind of calling bitracy because, of course, this was now the oh, mid-'90s. Yeah. The internet is arriving and, and he was – 
he was just this very interesting figure who was very well read, particularly in his uh, Derrida and Roland Barthes and, and those kind of figures, but read them as instruction manuals for generating content, mm. not for um, doing criticism. Oh, interesting. And he he kind of had a, a, a really early essay in a Hal Foster collection called uh, like after criticism or post criticism or something. And he kind of said the job now is in fact to construct criticism or construct uh, responses. And then, then he just became incredibly productive and excessively. So he he just, he started throwing anything and everything together and partly because he had this argument that you, you no longer make arguments by kind of um, abducting to a Mm. theoretical Mm -hmm. model. Mm-hmm. Uh, you make arguments through conduction. You literally just stick things next oh, to each other. Yeah, yeah. And of course, all of this, you know, very hypercard and now absolutely yeah. just a, a yeah. Facebook feed. I don't know. So he was, a, he was, he, he wrote an early book which I just sort of stumbled on with a fantastic title. It was called Applied Grammatology, mm. which, which itself was just like, that's just anathema. Yeah. You, yeah. Grammatology is a sophisticated theoretical activity. It's not anything right. you could possibly apply. Right. And it was called Applied Grammatology, and the subtitle was um, Post-Pedagogy from Joseph Boyce to Jacques Derrida, right? Oh, interesting. And so he was looking at avant-garde art practices and putting Derrida in that lineage, and all of it was sort of applied That's... teaching techniques. Yeah. And so it's it, it, it like... It was really weird to come across these things that were no longer about understanding but about production. Yeah. And it seemed to me it had a really rich uh, way of of convincing you to do this kind of productive work. And so, again, it was sort of he was in the uh, – he was like a progenitor of people saying we're moving into the content-creating generation. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it just – it totally kind of fitted with the fact that design makes its criticisms by making alternative. I it's, love that. It was, it was just – it was – I don't know. He wrote crazy books. He wrote a book called uh, Heuretics, The Logic of Invention. He wrote a book called <laughs> – something. wrote a book about monuments, about how to kind of hack monuments. Oh, wow. um, he's an amazing figure. He's still kicking around as a kind of playful okay. Facebook page. He's retired now. Um, and so, he, yeah, he, he was just, when I was reading philosophy but wanting to do something with it, and he was the person who kind of looked like a precedent for that. And he was only precedents for that at that time. Uh, and and it drew attention to kind of emerging technologies in a way that was right. really quite prescient. And so when you were when you were reading this and when you were you were starting to make these connections kind of in your own research and study how th- this might be kind of a weird question but I'm I'm curious kind of what y- your kind of understanding of that word design was like like was that the word word that you were able to use that's where you saw these things coming together or how did that specific word design become that connecting point. You know what so, I so mean? There's, there's kinda... two versions that, yeah, no, 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 it's, it's a spot on question. Um, and there, I've got really two quite very specific answers okay, to great. it. Um, quite literally like, yes, I ran into the word design and the thing that I was, well, oh yeah, that's exactly what I'm looking okay, for. Perfect. And those two things were, the first was that, um, well, just to finish the story with Greg Ulmer, although this was in fact second. He's not the one who did this to me, but okay. then I saw that he'd done it already. Right. And it was weird 
just because I was reading him. But he told a really stupid story because he's a bit of a prank star. Okay. Um, and he told a really stupid story at one point that when he was an undergraduate, he went to his uh, studies advisor and said, I want to know something about design. Mm. And he meant Heidegger's term for existence, Dasein. But, of course, the studies person said, all right, go to this room on this day. And he walked in and somebody's talking about design. And so he was punning punning on that connection. And, in fact, there's a couple of interesting um, now papers around that. There was a a kind of ex-Horschelfergestaltung and Ulm guy who kind of wrote a paper about that as well. But the true story is that when I was kind of being told that what I was doing was not philosophy, a friend of mine said, well, I'm studying with this guy in the fine arts department and he reads a lot of Heidegger and you should you should do his stuff. And I was like, what does he teach? And he said, well, he's a design theorist. And his name was Tony Fry. And so, again, I don't know how well Tony Fry is known outside of Australia and a little bit the UK in cultural studies circles. But That name sounds familiar. Uh, yeah, so he's, he's, he's a design theorist, is most yeah. of his literature. Um, he, uh, he's, he's an ex-Marxist or a Marxist still. He's, he's uh, uh, you know, got okay. a fierce political commitment to revolution, yeah. but he was absolutely committed to questions of sustainability. Um, and he was using a Heideggerian account of design. Okay. So he was talking about design is ontological. Design yeah. makes ontologies. It makes, you know, what, what I later discovered Fernando Flores would call disclosing new worlds. Mm-hmm, you know, it mm-hmm, opens mm-hmm. Yeah. whole new types of existence. And so, yeah, it was just very natural to have been reading Heidegger and then bump into Tony Fry and he says, no, you know, if, if you don't want to just read about the history of being, but you want to make the next stage of the history of being, what you use is design, design yeah, materializes yeah, yeah. things. And so at that point, I was just like, yeah, yeah. And he was into ecological politics. So I was like, fantastic, you're the guy. Right, and so yeah. then I just totally switched everything, majored with him. And, and then sort of what happened is he made a quite radical decision, which is, he sort of, I was just about to begin my PhD with him and he came to me and he said, I am, I'm leaving the university. Okay. The university is not capable of thinking sustainability large enough. It's too oh, disciplinary. Wow. It, it just cannot do it. And so I am going to make an alternative institution. I'm going to make a new type of university. Wow. And that's what I'm going to go do. So I'm going to... Um, go and set up this thing called the Eco Design Foundation. Uh, this was like 1991. He started doing it, having this conversation with him in 92, maybe. Okay. And he said, "Okay, so I'm starting this thing, and it's now started enough for me to take a kind of early redundancy and um, go go do that full time." Yeah. I he said to me, "I can still be your advisor, but if you want to do that, uh, you have to um, come and work with me at the Eco Design Foundation." So yeah, my PhD was on Martin Heidegger with him while we and a few other people established the Eco Design Foundation, oh, which wow. was a kind of think tank around advancing the discourse of sustainable design. Oh, interesting. And of course, at that point, you know, that ni- mid nineties, sustainable design, yeah. its official discourse was just 
greening production. Right. It was technocratic and tedious and instrumental and going nowhere. Mm-hmm. And this was the organization that was going to create ontological change towards sustainable futures. And so that's, that's, that's so yeah, essentially my PhD was on the side of doing that project. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So did you did you have any I'm going to ask this in two ways, I guess. Um, did you have an ambition to be a practicing designer or have you worked as a designer or have you it seems like you've mostly stayed on that kind of theoretical academic side, right? Yeah, so two things happened. Okay. Uh, it like just <laughs> two things happened in the continuation of the 90s. Okay. So the first is the internet came and the right. Eco Design Foundation needed a website. Mm. And so <laughs> I became the person who started um, putting that web page together. And so, you know, I just had to pick up books and teach myself uh, HTML3 and just start oh, nice. coding and start thinking about information architecture. And, yeah. and so uh, the extent of my actual, like, practice of design yeah. was – I was an early builder of websites, uh, but I certainly would never put that on my CV, and, and I don't think I got anywhere in terms right. of right. to that practice. Right. But you know, to some extent, I, a lot of my understanding of design came from trying to think through those machinations, yeah. and particularly that weird face of kind of early coding, really quite rudimentary coding, and trying to do communication of very complex ideas and. And yeah. the Eco Design Foundation was such a weird organization. Um, the 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 second is the second answer is kind of no. I've I, I'm absolutely an academic and and still a kind of failed philosopher. Like I like thinking yeah, yeah. and I like designing concepts. I don't. I'm not good at making things. I mm. I have a bad temper whenever I try to do anything manual. I'm yeah. hopeless. However. <laughs> right. So one other thing that kind of happened is that in 2001, after the Eco Design Foundation kind of shut down, I, I moved into academia proper. Okay. And I was at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a, a friend who I met at a conference asked me down to the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, RMIT, mm-hmm. because they were running practice-based design PhD. Mm. Okay. And they needed people who had PhDs to come and crit these practitioners. Yeah. But they needed to be very sensitive people who weren't just going to hit these practitioners over the head with books. Right. But instead kind of were going to help those practitioners articulate their practice, which is what that practice-based PhD was. And so for twice a year, I went down and listened and tried to sort of help practitioners articulate their practice mm. and, and help them find mm. words for what they were doing and show them some literature that might sort of be a precedent for the way they were trying to think about it. And so I was I was kind of teaching PhD students who were designers and it was the richest learning experience for me about practice because I spent, you know, almost seven years, eight years just listening to people <laughs> struggle to articulate practice. Yeah. And so I'm not a practitioner, but I'm very grateful for, for having had that and still continuing, uh, you know, on, on Monday I, I fly to Barcelona to continue that same work oh, okay. with RMIT 
who now run a Europe-based, uh, practice-based PhD. And so um, I would sort of occasionally try and claim some legitimacy in the practice domain by saying I've sat on the shoulder of practitioners a lot, you know, a bit like the Wings of Desire and the Angel. <laughs> that was a very yeah. good personality. But, but um, That's what this yeah, is for. It, it, yeah. It's, it's, it, so, yeah, that's as close as I kind of get. Uh, and and I have to say that that's my happiest place. Like the thing I love the most about uh, my sort of professional life is when I get the opportunity to be with practitioners articulating their practice, not actually building things with them. Yeah. I don't have any patience. Well, that actually is, is interesting to hear because – one of the reasons that I was really drawn to your writing and and the work that I've uh, you know the the your kind of public uh, public writing is that even though you come from a, a philosophy highly theoretical background, it's it always feels very much rooted in practice itself. It's always you're always kind of taking these things and connecting them to the actual work to the. Uh, process to the artifact. And, and so I, I guess I'm kind of, I was kind of curious. That's why I asked if you had worked as a designer, because it, it does seem to come back to that. Is that something that's important to, to you that, that you're kind of connecting or bridging these gaps uh, between kind of academia and practice or, or theory and practice? Uh, it's, it's absolutely essential. So I just, um, I mean, as I said, it, the, the, the original motivation was a kind of frustration that, that I went to university with the people I thought were the smartest people in the world. Yeah. And they, I just couldn't get them to think about material issues, even though they were reading what I thought were materialist philosophers. Yeah. And so that was just an original kind of uh, frustration. And, and yes, the, the whole project has been how, how do I find ways of materializing ideas? And if I don't have the skills right. to materialize ideas, you know, I have to find people who have those skills and then like harangue them and cajole them till they yeah. make what I tell them they should make. Yeah. Which again is a really <laughs> to put it, but but that right. is kind of that's what I've made a career out of doing. Um, there is, I mean, I think it's it's a very it's a very important larger issue just to do with the nature of the university. Mm-hmm. And I'm very hesitant to say this because it, it, it quickly descends into a kind of anti-intellectualism and a kind of anti-theory yeah, yeah. kind of position. Um, I think it's, it's really crucial that uh, academics use their privilege of not being in the market to absolutely mm. sit on the shoulders of the market and that it's very important that they sort of spend time not in their discipline but instead understanding where those sites of engagement are and trying to find those sites of engagement and i'll just give you one quick example which i'm still struggling with and not 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 succeeding in doing but um it uh, it became apparent that the practice of design was shifting radically with the arrival of technology companies uh, and uh, the kind of the way in which a craft-based studio education was suddenly colliding with the agile manifesto in software development and UX in startup and, you know, shifting from the idea of prototyping to a minimum viable product. Uh, And it became very apparent to me that, that 
when I was talking about design, that wasn't how designers were designing anymore. So yeah. now I had to desperately try and work out what the hell all this lean agile stuff is. And I had a great opportunity, you know, one of the people I've been working with at Carnegie Mellon, Jay Bloom, um, was heavily involved in the, the lean UX space mm. in New York City, came across to Pittsburgh. And, and so he's been an incredible entree for me into how people think and work. Yeah. And I've had a great opportunity. And it's, it's such an incredibly thoughtful community, um, way more theoretically sophisticated than any design community I've ever mm. come across. But on the other hand, like hyper-instrumentalist on the other. It's a weird set of people who satisfies hyper-productivity and yet they read difficult theory in order to be more productive. So like it's, <laughs> right. it's an incredibly yeah, yeah. interesting space. Yeah. But yeah, I'm spending a lot of time at the moment just trying to understand lean agile as a practice. That's interesting. Just as an example. I mean, to find a way of jamming these discourses into those kinds of practitioners. Yeah, I mean, that that's actually leads into two things that I was kind of interested in talking to you about. And one of them is looking over your career, I noticed that you kind of move between different, uh, I don't know if you want to call them fields of design or different uh, ways of thinking about design, whether uh, you've written about design thinking, you've written about sustainability, you've written about kind of user experience and, and interface design, you've written about um, kind of more like systems design and kind of strategic design. And something that, that I'm interested in or something that I've uh, started to kind of realize about myself just over the course of doing this podcast even was how narrow my original definition of design was and and that that it's a lot bigger than i thought it was and that all of these different modes or fields are all really starting to blend together and that these these uh uh maybe silos is the right word of kind of um you know a graphic designer versus a interface designer versus a, a systems designer how these are all blending together and I, maybe this isn't a question other than that I would just love to hear you talk about your experience in that because I feel like that's you're kind of operating at all of those intersections or at that collapsing moment. Yeah. So that was a weird I mean, way to set up a funny. question. I'm sorry. No, no, no. no I, I totally get so I think two things have kind of happened in my mind, one of which is really exciting and the other of which is depressing and the two of them together are just depressing. So the, the one is, you know, when I started working with Tony Fry and working in the space of design and writing about design, mm -hmm. you know, so from the mid-90s through to, you know, the mid-2000s, really until just before I came to New York, um, I mean, design was an unheard of discourse right. to anybody other than a designer and especially treated with utter disdain and contempt by every discipline right so you know you would you would go and say to people i'm at a university and they would say what department you're in you're in design and they'd say i didn't even know there was a design department at this university like what the yeah. hell is design yeah and they would be a sociologist or a political theorist or you know even a scientist and it was just and that was right up until, I think it's sort of important to say, right up until the mid-2000s. The, the word had no currency. It yeah. was incomprehensible. And then, of course, um, 
uh, you know, IDEO and, and Tim Brown and yep. the design thinking, Roger Martin. And so when I arrived in New York City, Bruce Nussbaum had just written his kind of famous oh, think yeah. piece saying design thinking's over already. We should right. call it banana, uh, which was kind of weird because I didn't even know it was a thing. And, and, and then, of course, it's just gone on from there that design thinking done by non-designers mm-hmm. is now rampant and the big four consultancies make squillions out of governments and corporations selling just rubbish post-it note methodology right, junk. Right. And and in the meantime, so you've had that kind of designer suddenly become ubiquitous. Yeah. And in the in the meantime, you've also had the fact that digital has taken bits of typography and put it into screen, but then it's collided that with uh, you know, an understanding of software and a weird version of the user, and it calls it product design. Right. So yeah, that's your job. Facebook, you're a product designer, even though you you can't even plane a piece of wood. So <laughs> so that's a weird convergence, yeah. and that's what I mean by like. So the first thing is, all of a sudden, it's fantastic because I can actually go places and people understand design right. because the discourse is now widely recognised. Mm-hmm. And I should say the other thing that was happening in the background is sociology of technology studies with Bruno Latour and people like that. They start suddenly discovering design. Now, of course, every digital humanities person in the world thinks they're a designer. So you can now walk around a university and say, I'm in a design department. People are like, yeah, I know what that is. And that's great. You're you're interesting. And I even do it. (laughs) On the other hand, as every designer whinges and complains about uh, design thinking, what has happened in that convergence and uh, sort of becoming more pervasive is an absolute loss of the essence of the way in which designers right. approach the world. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, this, it's, it's just so annoying that at the very moment you have currency uh, is the same moment at which you lose the capacity to actually convince anybody that it's something really special. Right. It's like, yeah, I understand design and anybody can design. And it's like, no, no, they're like the crafting of materiality such that it creates worlds and doesn't just make convenience, but actually makes worlds that whether it's fashion design or whether it's communication design or whether it's architecture or product design, these things all do it in their own particular ways, but they have something about why they use the word design. And yeah. it's it's really special and we still don't understand it and so it's frustrating because now you sort of get invited lots of places but you're kind of like yeah i'm really glad you're interested in design but what you think it is that's like it's so much more than what you think it is just slow down right let's, right let's do some practitioners um so it's it's yeah it's a it's a weird time uh in which there is so much opportunity and yet it's so difficult to try and bring patient clarity and i gotta say you know the consequence is uh facebook cambridge analytica the consequence is that a bunch of people are designing things and no one understands the way design designs it's like no one is understanding we all know how to design we have no idea the consequences of what we're designing and that's we knew that in relation to sustainable design now we know it in relation to uh, digital platform social media design uh, you know, Victor Papanek told us this. It's just very apparent that this thing that everybody's doing, nobody actually comprehends. 
Yeah. And this, you know, this in a lot of ways was when I started this and when I was in grad school thinking about design criticism, these were the types of things that I was thinking about where it felt like, um, and especially in graphic design, so much of that discourse was about that surface level without any, you know, Facebook redesigns their newsfeed and there's a hundred essays about the typography of the newsfeed without, you know, kind of any really consideration about the algorithms that are running it or what these changes are trying to make the user do. And it just feels like, like that, um, people are starting to understand that I feel like in the last year or so that, that these tools, uh, are not neutral and are not just visual, uh, visual systems, but they are, they have larger, things behind them i guess yep, it's, yeah. absolutely and 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 again that's why i would still kind of insist on this idea that they're they're ontological using mm-hmm. you know a weird kind of heideggerian term that that they are making worlds what right. we understand is that they they build versions of credibility yeah they afford yeah. particular ways of being a human they they persuade and make more likely certain types of interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, I should I should just say, just a throwback to uh, Greg Ulmer's stuff. It, it just feels so weirdly kind of uh, the way these things come around. So I remember sort of one of the first ways I understood his work back in the mid nineties was he ran this strange analogy and he said. Oral discourse it has an immediacy, but it's very difficult to have memory associated with it. So then we develop literacy. Literacy writes things down, but then mm-hmm. things become ambiguous because you don't, you know, as Plato said, kind of have the original author to consult anymore. Right. So you have memory, but you have ambiguity. So you either have non-ambiguity through the immediacy of oral discourse, but no memory, or you have memory and ambiguity. And then he just said, well, what happens when you move to electricity or bitricity, which he was kind of arguing is this third McLuhanistic yeah. kind of era yeah. of knowledge. When you move to that era, you put the two things together and you get the worst of both. Right. You get mediacy yeah. and vagueness. Oh, wow. Which is why everything turns into flame wars and trolling. Yeah. Like, it just, when I read a tweet, I think that person is subtweeting me. I immediately... <laughs> <laughs> think it has the in the immediacy of oral discourse, when in fact I, I should be doing some careful hermeneutic analysis of the context, which right. doesn't exist on Twitter. And so then right. I engage them, and all of a sudden, you know, it's escalated, and and Donald Trump got elected. You know, it's, <laughs> sorry, that was a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of an extension there. Yeah, I um, think you're kind of right, yeah. though. <laughs> yeah, but so understanding. The, the way the system of algorithm on the one hand, typeface on the other, mm-hmm. the history of engaging with news as a culture, mm-hmm. the way in which those three things come together and are making likely without determining the problems with epistemology we currently have, like I can't work out the credibility of anything. And so I just latch out because now I sort of become a barbarian again. (laughs) That situation, that just needs to be so carefully thought through. And the punchline here is, you know, who do you go to to ask that? On the one hand, your question, your comment was kind of saying, 
it's great that people are finally recognizing that typography plays a role in that epistemological uh, car crash. But if you then went back to your typography professor right. and said, right, so let's think about this. Unfortunately, like that's just not a discourse that exists. And I don't know where they are. I mean, it's, it's so fantastic to hear you doing this, but you're a pioneer, I have to say. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, because they're yeah. just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of embarrassing you with that. But what I'm kind of trying to make the argument that we just, design has been recognized for how important it is. And yet it's so behind in having the discursive maturity of being able to stand up to its right. currently responsibility. Yeah. And I want to, I want to connect that to actually, um, you know, you, you embarrass me now. I want to reciprocate that a little bit. My favorite, my, my favorite thing that you have written, uh, was an essay that you published on medium called just design. Uh, and, and this is a essay, it was probably 2015 or so. Um, that I have literally assigned this essay to, I assign it to every class that I teach. It's, it's required reading if, if you take one of my classes. And specifically for uh, one paragraph that you have right in the middle where you, where you basically, you're, you're kind of breaking down how there's, um, I'm sorry to re-explain something that you wrote, but you, you kind of talk about speculative design and design fiction and future design and all of this. And then you have this great line right in the middle where you basically say, any design that isn't already speculating, fiction, researching, yeah. this, this, this is inadequate designing. And I feel like that it, it's such a great concept. And I, I find it, especially with undergrad graphic design students who kind of a blanket statement, but often just want to make stuff that looks cool. They want to make stuff that they can post on Instagram that, you know, looks good and and uh, you know showing them that there's all this other part of the design process also and i think this is just coming back to kind of what you were talking about already is that design is this thing that has to include all of these things but often does get relegated to that very simplistic idea yeah yeah so so this is the the I think one of the really special things, and I've kind of argued this before, one of the really special things about design is is its attentiveness to material quality, mm -hmm. you know, or aesthetics, which in in a kind of bad version is something looks cool. And and it, it is, you know, that's the terrible thing about designers, that they spend all their time obsessing about the cool, but it, it actually is, I think, the special power that they do pay attention to material things and, right. and by material i mean even typefaces on a screen um they they pay attention to material things and they think that those things are really important to the quality of life mm -hmm. now two problems uh, arise the first is that they mistake a particular historical context right as being universal. Right. And so, you know, we are still stuck in a kind of late modernist paradigm of design aesthetics. And yeah. it's just, it's really sad and pathetic to see that people are still obsessed with white space and, and uh, minimalism <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, just, just generally the clean and elegant and, and this becomes the sign of design. Um, and, you know, by the way, anybody who designs like that, you just are never going to 
have a market in any of the East Asian or South Asian futures right. of this planet, right. the actual futures of this planet, because America's sliding into the sea. So, um, you know, you just you have to give up that context, and you have to understand, you know, it's cool within a particular right, right, colonial, imperial, you know, possibly even white supremacist way of approaching the world. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so I think it's really important that designers recognize material quality and it's really terrible that design school makes them not realize how context specific coolness is mm-hmm. um and you know the flip side of that yeah. is is kind of cranbrook school experimentalism which which these days is just algorithmic type and it's just kind of <laughs> wow that that was cool it sure is hellishly ugly and incomprehensible but but that's that's cool precisely because it's the opposite of mid-century elegant right. modernism yeah 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 uh, you know whereas what's really interesting is is um the fact that most people are reading TV Week and this kind of shit design, this is the thing that's really – that has agency. You just need to look at, um, you know, any right-wing website and just kind of be horrified of the, right. uh, yeah. the mash of places on that. So that goes to the second point, which is, you know, there should be so much – which is kind of that article you're talking about. There should be yeah. so much more experimentation in design. Yeah. I mean, there just should be tons of experimentation. Yeah. But the experimentation should not be merely aesthetic. It right. shouldn't be aesthetic game. Right. It should be experiments in persuasion, experiments in uh, uh, hybridizing one thing in a different context. It should be experiments in cross-cultural. It should be experiments – in which you are evaluating whether these have affects or not, affects right. other than brightness. And there are much more experiments in the kind of user testing version of experiments. Mm-hmm. But again, not testing for instrumental usability, but seeing can I create new worlds? And that was sort of that's the point of that line to just say, yeah. you got into this practice, I think. When right. I talk to designers, they got into this practice to do that kind of work. And then they never get to do that work. So quite often they go back to grad school and then they do speculative critical design and think it's cool. <laughs> right, yeah, you're talking no about me right now, yeah. Right. So, you know, you, you, you've got to fight politically mm-hmm. to find ways of doing that kind of work in the very heart of commercial right. design, which is, which is actually what, you know, some, not all, but some clients want. Some clients want, show me the black swan that I can't anticipate in what might happen to suddenly disrupt my aesthetic, which I thought was working because it was mm-hmm. so elegant. It was kind of like you just got wiped out by a South Asian website, which has come and accessed a completely different market because it's not committed to that kind of Eurocentric design. Um, and so that's, you, you know, designers should be doing those experiments uh, because that's about sort of building new audiences, which is about building new worlds. That's how you actually use your craft uh, uh, deep expertise in getting agency uh, that create alternative future. I I love that. So I, all of that is kind of exactly what I'm really interested in. So I'm going to ask you a very. I'm going to like try to take this kind of big question and really bring it down and make it something practical. I'm very curious. Like what? How do you talk about this with your students, or what kind of classes are you teaching where you can? Um, start to get your students to think think about about this and i'm asking purely selfishly because i want to borrow you know whatever you're whatever you're doing uh the the truth is uh you've caught me at a funny kind of uh moment of um uh, extraordinary doubt about what i'm doing okay (laughs) 
And it, it's a funny kind of um, – I'm caught in a funny moment in the history of the university and particularly in this country, Australia, who I've moved back to, which has a very neoliberal audit culture mm-hmm. version of the university. Mm-hmm. And I'm really missing uh, – I'm not missing a lot about the United States, but I'm, I'm really missing um, the privilege that comes with American – universities, particularly mm. elite and exclusive universities because of pricing, that have endowments to kind of encourage you to be speculative right, research right. and engage in some some different kind of spaces. So all of that is set up to say that all of my teaching since I've come back to Australia is is lecture based. And and obviously I I too much enjoy lecturing. And I'm just starting to think at the moment I'm I'm I've kind of lost my um, my edge a little bit in in terms of doing that. It's it's uh, it's feeling like I'm 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 just mouthing stuff. Oh right, and yeah, and and I'm talking to too many people, and I'm I'm not close enough to practice anymore. So I'm about to jump institutions, and I'm I'm going to be doing less teaching, and and the teaching I do is going to be hopefully a lot more studio based. So oh, the kind of answer to your question is. That that the the work I try to do is create studios around alternative futures, and they need to have this mix of both being speculative and uh, plausible right now. So my, the most successful stuff I've done in that space has been in sharing economy, but what what I prefer to now call platform cooperativism, mm-hmm. which is the kind of um, worker-owned cooperative take-back of mm-hmm. the platforms. Um, you know, all these kind of Airbnb and Uber uh, right. actually only have numbers because the platform is dead simple and any any workers could own their own cooperatives and then the money would be going back to them instead of to venture capital. Mm. And so that's the political project. And the political project is literally saying, okay, so you're an interaction designer, you're a communication designer, and you're even an interior or service designer. So let's make a platform cooperative in this economy. Let's make a platform cooperative in this. Let's find a cooperative and lend them those design skills. And and that's a space in which, you know, um, I'm actually sitting, you know, touching the shoulders of people who yeah. uh, have a better understanding of how to sort of build these platforms and understanding where the technologies are going. And But there is an actual audience to work with. And yet right. all of this is also kind of utopian and quite socialist. <laughs> I'm desperate to get back to that. Um, I, I am, yeah, you caught me at a weird moment where I'm, I'm just, I'm feeling like what I'm doing at the moment, which is lecture-based, is has lost effectivity. Yeah, and that's I, interesting. I to reboot a little bit. Yeah. I have, I have two more questions. These are two questions that I ask everybody. And we've kind of talked around both of these questions actually uh, but I'm very curious you know what from your perspective what are the issues or topics that either designers should be talking about right now or that uh, critics and theorists should be kind of putting their attention to right now or like what are the issues that are kind of facing either design at large or even specifically graphic design that you would like to see more discourse around Uh, you know, the resurgence of Nazism and climate change is the short answer. Um, I suppose I'm, I'm trying to find a way of answering the question. Uh, 
I mean, I do. So let me just say, like, to that first one, um, I, I am, I am genuinely politically lost at the moment because I am one of those liberals, uh, to use American political parlance, who failed to see the extent to which the project of enlightenment and the increasing right. cosmopolitanness yeah. of our societies was a myth. And that the fact that we had the Holocaust in the 20th century doesn't seem to have convinced a lot of people that one needs to be extra vigilant about all forms of uh, racism uh, and that they are still institutionally present in the economy and in the policing yeah, and yeah. in the way in which discourses are written mainstream media. So I, I've been just totally taken aback by that. And the only kind of version of dealing with that I have at the moment is, you know, that the connection to design, one connection to design, is that it is also a taste politics. Mm. So yeah. what I mean by that is, uh, on the one hand, when I said before that if you go to a right-wing website and see the mash of ugly kind of design that's occurring in a kind of TV week kind of way, um, you know, it's it's any designer who's reacting like that is recognizing that their mid-century elegance is what causes something to be seen yeah. as liberal elite. And so you play a part in that. And then the second is just to kind of say, I mean, just look at sort of the way the media just totally effed up this by running pieces on how dapper these neo-Nazis were. <laughs> it was a kind of politics argument, you know. It was kind of... Um, yeah. uh, you know, and this is this is the same thing as as thinking I have a nice Starbucks and there's a couple of people who don't fit in with right. the way you're supposed to be in Starbucks. I'm going to call the police on them. Right. Um, right. You know, so this this question of of kind of beauty and taste and elegance and minimalism and and quite literally white space. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sort of deliberately being. Um, inflammatory here. You know, these these are things that I think designers should be thinking. They should be thinking about their role yeah, in this yeah, yeah. stood in much larger way. I mean, you read every day, you pick up a paper and somebody will say, climate change is the most significant issue facing the history of humanity in 50,000 years, which was the last time we faced climate change. Like, it's... You can't even use the word epic now because it's been stolen by Marvel. But, you know, like <laughs> this is the issue. Yeah. And it is so much the issue that it you cannot do anything else. Like everything right. yeah. else, every other priority actually needs to be dropped. And you you come across these arguments every now and then you kind of think, yeah, 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 that's, that's kind of true. And let's look in the fridge to see what food from the other side of the planet I can eat while I yeah. mull over the idea that I should be doing nothing else. Like I, right now I need to drop every other project and only think about decarbonizing, only think about reducing energy consumption, only thinking about materials intensity reduction, only thinking about tackling large-scale finance, which is continuing to fund centralized delivery of energy. You know, yeah. like, like there's 101 things you could be doing and every single one of them makes everything else utterly <laughs> trivial. Right. Yeah. And so I kind of think the other thing designers should be thinking about is like, how do we exist in this world at the moment yes. in which 
it's kind of possible to totally know this. I've had enough of a graduate education to read those articles and, you know, they fit my taste regime. I read them in Scientific America or there's something in the New Yorker, you know, uh, Elizabeth Colbert's written something and I, I think, well, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I just go back to something else. Right. And, yeah. and that level of, like, like universal hypocrisy, the fact that we are all living such, such just, those of us who are aware of climate change and aren't in denial about it are just living such hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I think designers should be thinking about. Yeah. And I don't, I, don't, I don't know what they should be doing about it, but they, sh- they, they are the people who build the materiality of our existence and therefore should be thinking about it. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's such a great, great answer. My last question, and, and this is another one that we've kind of talked around a little bit. I'm curious, who are the, who are the writers or what are the books that have really influenced you or kind of shaped how you think about all of these things that, that we're talking about, or even to, you know, maybe to put it a different way, uh, someone's listening to this and is interested in all of these things we're talking about, who would you tell them that, that are kind of required reading? Uh, so the, the first one I mentioned kind of previously, you know, sort of having walked backwards from Heidegger into design, I was, uh, and kind of heard ontological design from Tony Fry, I was incredibly excited to suddenly learn later on that um, other people had been using the term in exactly that way. And so the book to read is Disclosing New Worlds by yeah. Hubert Dreyfus, uh, by um, Charles Spinoza, Fernando Flores, and Hubert Dreyfus. So, you know, Hubert Dreyfus is the, is the West Coast uh, yeah. biggest scholar, uh, just recently passed uh, about a year ago or so. Um, Fernando Flores was the... Chilean Minister of Finance and in the Allende government, the great socialist experiment with CyberSyn and sort of cybernetic socialism. Uh, you know, he had to flee when the CIA backed Pinochet, went and studied with Dreyfus and and thought Heideggerianly about the birth of email and the way the office of the future was going to come. And then that kind of book, which is really dated now, it's a very liberal politics book. In kind of like uh, you know, almost Bush era kind of version of liberal, right. but nevertheless, I think there are really like that account of design in that book, um, or, or better, in fact, is the really earlier book by Fernando Flores with Terry Winogrand, Understanding Computers and Cognition. So mm-hmm. I would I would okay. read Understanding Computers and Cognition by Terry Winogrand and Fernando Flores, and, and then I would read um, Disclosing New Worlds because I think that's what I think design is in you know, articulating those two books. Um, the, the other the other end of the scale, and, and interestingly, by the way, uh, Arturo Escobar, um, the, the great uh, Colombian oh, yeah. uh, development anthropologist, you know, he's just written a new book called uh, Designs on the Pluriverse. Uh, and finally, an anthropologist with a really strong political activist background yeah, right. has realized they need to think about design. And... It's it's like the version of design that he picked up was Tony Fry and Fernando Flores. Mm. It was like, yeah, you know, fantastic. <laughs> you know, you didn't pick up Tim Brown and you didn't pick up Roger Martin. Right. So that was just so so that book's a really interesting summary, a more contemporary one just came out about a month ago. Um, the other is a weird one I would just suggest and it's 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 dangerous politically and a little aesthetist. Uh, in a way, but uh, the French sinologist Francois Julien, I so he's know. a French philosopher who's, who spent a lot of time thinking about um, 
ancient China as it's differentiated from ancient Greece. Mm. And these are, like, so this is a weird suggestion because it sounds pretty arcane. He actually uh, writes in translation um, quite quite beautifully um, and kind of exposes the West to ways of thinking that it can't quite comprehend. Mm. So, for example, um, an, one not so recent but but not early is called Silent Transformation. And it's, it's kind of a study to some extent of uh, transformations that you can't notice. They kind of happen too slowly or oh, yeah. too disputedly. So the classic one is growing old, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of waking up one morning right. looking in the mirror and thinking, God, I'm old. And I think so much of Silicon Valley is just people terrified by getting old <laughs> and dead yeah. that I think would be useful to kind of say, you know, the kind of um, sucking the blood of the young, both metaphorically and literally, <laughs> could be corrected by people understanding silent transformation. And so I just find those books, uh, he wrote a, a really beautiful one early on called The Propensity of Things. Oh, um, that sounds, I think I know this one. That sounds really familiar. It's, yeah, Brunel Latour picked it up and okay. kind of promoted yeah, it a little that's bit. That's probably right. Uh, so... I just think if you want to have some bedside reading of kind of philosophy and, and you don't want tech bro Nietzscheanism, kind of like reading yeah. uh, François Julien is, is a nice corrective. Um, I, feel, I feel bad that I am not mentioning women authors off the top of my head that you should be reading. Uh, I mean, I've got to just say... Um, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce her name, even though she says how to pronounce her name on the website. Um, uh, Sarah Wachter-Betches on Design for the Real World. I mean, the, the people at the coalface of thinking, how do you actually design a civil internet? Mm-hmm. And the people who have strong feminist politics uh, and intersectional politics around that, and but they write as designers. Yeah. Um, you know, those... Those books just should be mandatory, um, and I think, yeah, yeah that they they're, they're sort of much more um, they're much more of their era. I don't think they'll last, um, but they identified the problem before it became widely known, right. and they've been saying it beautifully. The kind of the the recognition of the politics of interactions and micro interactions around microaggressions, like spot on, absolutely spot yeah. on, mandatory read. That was great. This, uh, Cameron, thank you so much. I, like I said, I'm a big fan of your work and just uh, have found a lot of your writing and the way you think about these things to be very influential on kind of my own journey in design. And, and you've been someone that I've been wanting to talk to for a while. And so I'm really glad we got to do this. This was, this was a blast. I, I feel like I learned so much. So thank you so much. This was, this was great. And thank you. I'm, I'm really honoured by by your invitation. Honoured, honoured uh, to have the opportunity to talk narcissistically about my biography. It's um, it's rare, and as you can see, I enjoy it too much. But I really uh, thank you very much. This episode was recorded on April eighteenth, two thousand eighteen. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud, and at ScratchingTheSurface.fm. Thanks for listening.